Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, это Prevail, и ваш ведущий Грег Олег. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show for you today. Moscow Never Sleeps is here, the contributor to Prevail. He's written some pieces about Russia, where he lived for about 10 years, working as an attorney. He wrote a great series, a three-part series called How to Fix the Supreme Court, which concerned Clarence Thomas. At the time, this is before January 6th, he said that the way to get rid of Clarence Thomas from the court was to investigate the taxes of Clarence Thomas's wife, Virginia Lamp Thomas. Now, this seems pretty likely given her role in the January 6th insurrection. I think we are going to see her taxes investigated. Moscow Never Sleeps is going to take a bow if that comes to pass. He also wrote a piece about Amy Coney Barrett and a piece about Brett Kavanaugh. And it's the piece about Brett Kavanaugh where he offers really the solution to how we get rid of this guy. So we're going to talk to him about that at the end. The topic of the show today is Brett Kavanaugh and specifically Brett Kavanaugh's money. I am going to read part two of the series called Who Owns Kavanaugh that Lincoln's Bible and I are writing for Prevail. Parts four and five are, are slotted to go next week, by the way. We're going we're gonna to close the series next week. I'm going to read part two, which is all about the money. So it's good to review this stuff. I know people have read it before. But when you really stop and think about it, it is crazy. Um, I wrote about this, we wrote about this back in, in 2018 when Kavanaugh was uh, going through the hearings. And then it seemed fishy. Now, in hindsight, it seems even fishier. So we're going to go through that. I'm going to read that. At the conclusion of that, we're going to talk to Moscow Never Sleeps, and he's going to offer some solutions for us. Then at the end, I'm going to take some questions. Some of you were kind enough to call in. And I'm going to reply, and it's going to be great. That's going to be a recurring feature, I hope, of the show. We'll, we'll get to that at the end. Meantime, it's been a great week so far. We have Merrick Garland looking like he's going to get confirmed as the Attorney General. And I have to say, I've, I've been influenced by the sort of idea I've had of what Merrick Garland might be like. But the Merrick Garland that we saw has exceeded my wildest expectations of what I thought Merrick Garland might be like. This This guy's great. Um, I think I kind of love him. I think he's going to be spectacular. And I think that in the long term, the Republicans erred by not putting him on the Supreme Court because as attorney general, oh boy, he's going to get him. We also have Donald John Trump has to turn his taxes over. His documents from Mazars, his accountants have to be turned over to Cy Vance. Cyrus Vance sounds like a character from a movie, right? It sounds like somebody from Scandal, but he is a real person. And um, it looks pretty bad for Trumpy. I don't think this is a good thing for Trumpy. One more thing before we get to the, the meat of the show. I was talking to a friend of mine today, who an older, very smart uh, gentleman. Um, and he said, 
hey, you bloggers and people that are on the social media and stuff, you really should go back and review all the comments that people made, the Republican politicians made about the election and how it was rigged. Because people made a lot of crazy comments like, oh, there's thousands of votes in Nevada that were stolen and this and that. And I think that's a worthy project. I'm going to work on that too. But um, anytime that, that we have one of these Republicans that said something crazy, I think it's a good idea to uh, kind of review it and go back to it and say, hey, you told us that there were like lots of votes that were stolen and that you had proof. So it's been a couple months. Where's your proof? Because, um, spoiler alert, they don't have any proof. And it just makes them look like idiots. I think this is a good idea. I'm going to get on this. I'm kind of excited about it. So that's the show. Like I said, Moscow Never Sleeps is here. I'm going to read the piece that uh, I did with Lincoln's Bible. And we're going to get some call-ins, which I'm really excited about. But before that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. International news and information. This is BBC World. I don't think the American people care. As winter storms deprive Texans of heat and streaming television services, American Senator Ted Cruz and his wife Heidi join us later in the hour to detail a Cancun elopement to spice up romance and a marriage crippled by aesthetic comments from former President Trump. A scenario explains Mr. Cruz to which all American marriages can relate. It was really love at first sight for both of us. This has been hell for Heidi and uh, me. We had a fun romance. We had no heat. Uh, people don't see in the news, but it's pretty long. We lost our electricity. Huge drop off. I certainly do see that soft side. We put treatments and lubricants on it so it can operate. Um, so he'll read the directions, read through things. I had him do um, some homework. Candlelight dinner. Not particularly handy. How he treats the private sector. <laughs> the private sector. As I was heading down there, <laughs> I started to have second thoughts. Uh, no, he won't always do everything you ask him to do. Coming up at 7 p.m. GMT, this is BBC World. All right, that was not really BBC News. That was actually our friends at History Falls Apart. You can follow them on the Twitter, at History Falls. Again, it's fake, but that really is Heidi Cruz and Ted Cruz's voices being mashed up in funny ways. And now, without further ado, I'm going to read Who Owns Kavanaugh? Part 2, The Finances. Prologue. Take me out to the ball game. Oh my God, these seats right behind home plate. And it's game one of the division series. Cubs versus the 97-win Nationals. Strasburg on the mound. A collective childhood fantasy for the four middle-aged friends was happening. The adrenaline of a dream come true was almost as sweet as the smell of the freshly cut grass on this perfect October night at the ballpark. Each of the four friends had enjoyed these seats before, many times, thanks to their buddy, Brett Kavanaugh. But tonight seemed extra special. They spent the evening cheering on Harper and Rendon, munching gourmet food in the VIP dining area, and popping in and out of the executive suite that comes with the season tickets. Their thirst for this elite slice of Americana quenched inning by inning with delicious ice-cold beer. Ah, Nationals Park. The exorbitant cost of this evening was worth every hard-earned penny they'd each spent. Tonight, they had a memory so special, they wouldn't need to mark the date in a calendar to remember every sight, taste, and sound. That's Brett's story, and it sure is a pleasant one. We just don't know that any of it is true. We don't know for certain if he actually purchased season tickets to the Washington Nationals every year from 2005 to 2017. We don't know if he held a ticket draft in his kitchen, where his friends, some from high school, would pull names out of Ashley's crockpot to see who got which seats. We don't even know if Brett likes the Nationals who played in Montreal from 1969 to 2004, or if he himself ever attended a game. Unlike the cold, hard math of baseball, the story Brett told about these tickets just doesn't add up. Still, one can easily imagine the pull of an evening like that, the dream of a perfect night at the ballpark. The promise of it might even compel mature, middle-aged men to tolerate a continued friendship with a painfully immature man like Brett. But not everyone who knew Brett from high school was so tolerant. At least one person was horrified. By 2018, she was a professor of psychology at Palo Alto University and a research psychologist at the Stanford University School of Medicine. She specialized in designing statistical models for research projects. Her name was Christine Blasey Ford. 
On July 30th, 2018, Ford sent a letter to the office of her senator, Diane Feinstein, detailing a sexual assault that happened to her at a party in high school at the hands of Brett Kavanaugh and his friend, Mark Gavro Judge. With great trepidation, she sent the email, and she waited. And for weeks, nothing happened. 1. The Financials In the lead-up to Brett Kavanaugh's 2018 Senate confirmation hearing, an epic fight was brewing. Nearly half a million pages of documents had already been released to the committee, out of which 150,000 or so were confidential. The White House was refusing to release over 100,000 more. Democrats were furious, but they were in the minority. They couldn't stop Mitch McConnell from ramming this guy through, with nothing but shadows around him. All they could do was make a stink. Then, just hours before the first hearing on September 4th, the White House dumped another 42,000 pages of documents, with strict instructions that they remain confidential. In totality, it was an impossible amount of documentation to properly wade through, and all of that was in addition to the complex web of Kavanaugh's financial documents that sat atop the senator's plates. While the White House releases came with confidentiality restrictions, Brett's financials were public. Most of this is due to judiciary financial transparency rules, since Kavanaugh was already a federal appeals judge. The press could get their hands on his financial disclosure statements. From his nomination in July to his hearing in September, we were deluged with articles about Brett's money. The reporting raised more questions than it answered. There were massive credit card debts that were suddenly inexplicably played off. There was a mystery around his million-dollar mortgage. There were stories about baseball tickets and patterns of expenditure that raised the specter of a gambling habit. There was a lifestyle that did not match an income. We, Lincoln's Bible and I, produced a deep dive on Medium at the time, where we pulled out most of the financials that didn't add up. What should have been an exercise in basic math remained a morass, spread out in pieces from one print article to the next. By the time any of it could be explored by the Judiciary Committee, none of it mattered. We never got our answers. And it's our hope that by putting all the pieces together in one place, the questions that most need answering can come into sharp focus, and the answers will have the space to emerge. After all, it's just math. The Big Buy since Robert Bork's nomination to the Supreme Court was torpedoed in 1987, the confirmation of a SCOTUS nominee has involved a healthy amount of theater. Usually, a qualified candidate is nominated, goes through the interview process, is the subject of grandstanding by the more partisan senators, and is then confirmed. That's what happened with Neil Gorsuch. But Brett Kavanaugh was different. His entire confirmation process was carefully stage-managed. There were ads... His face was on the side of a bus. IRS documents obtained by TMI show that a dark money group raised almost $30 million in the fiscal year when Kavanaugh was nominated. Specifically, the Judicial Crisis Network, or JCN, the PR arm of Leonard Leo's operation, more than half of that $30 million came from a single anonymous donor. One individual, whose identity we do not know, donated over 15 million bananas to help install this guy on the court. To be clear, this is not illegal, but it is unusual. Very wealthy people whose identities remain a mystery spent vast amounts of money to ensure that their boy, Brett Kavanaugh, made it to the finish line. You don't pony up that much cash and not expect a significant return on your investment. What we know. A single donor gave $15 million to JCN in 2018, helping promote Brett's nomination. What we don't know the donor's identity. The mortgage. In 2006, at the height of the real estate bubble, and three months before his first Senate confirmation hearing, Brett and Ashley Kavanaugh purchased a home in Chevy Chase, Maryland, the Tony Washington suburb where he'd grown up. The handsome four-bedroom had a purchase price of $1,225,000, a cool half a million dollars more than the sellers had paid six years earlier. The initial mortgage on the property was for just under a million bucks. According to his financial disclosure statements, the Kavanaugh's total stated assets at the time of the loan came to $121,000, with the bulk of that being vehicles and other personal property. Meanwhile, they carried $25,000 in credit card debt. Their net worth was ninety-six dollars 
121 in assets, less 25 in liabilities. Now, we're writers, not mathematicians, but we're pretty sure that 96000 is a lot less than the 240000 he produced for the down payment. And we're not the only ones who can add and subtract. Senate Democrats were also on top of this. When asked about it during his 2018 Senate questioning, here's what Kavanaugh said. Quote, The thrift savings plan loan that appears on certain disclosure reports was a federal government loan to help with the down payment on our house in 2006. That government loan program is available for federal government workers to help with the purchase of their first house. In our case, the loan was paid back primarily by regular deductions from my paycheck in the same way that taxes and insurance premiums are deducted from my paycheck. That loan has been paid off in full. What Brett proposes here is what Kellyanne Conway might term alternative math. In 2005, a year before he bought the house, Kavanaugh disclosed that the total value of his thrift savings plan account was $70,000 less than a third of the $245,000 down payment. So, like, where'd the money come from? Not his day job. At the time of the home purchase, Brett was a federal employee, drawing an annual salary of $62,026. Ashley worked at the George W. Bush Presidential Library Foundation and the Community Foundation for National Capital Region, neither high-salary positions. Her retirement plan was worth 1000 bucks. There was no other income and no gifts reported, nor did they cash in stocks or other investments. At least, that's what he told the Senate. The earth is round. Two plus two equals four. And the thrift savings story is bullshit. Lifestyle. If it was just the down payment, maybe we could chalk it up to divine intervention. But it's not only that he came up with a big chunk of change. It's that he didn't make enough money to even begin to cover his family's expenses. At 4% interest, the mortgage payments on his house would have been $4,600 a month, or $55,200 a year. In other words, the mortgage payments alone were more than what Brett Kavanaugh took home in 2006 after taxes. Just the mortgage. That doesn't include property taxes, homeowner's insurance, maintenance costs, the last of which, as he painstakingly explained in his Senate written testimony, cost a pretty penny. Over the years, we have sunk a decent amount of money into our home for sometimes unanticipated repairs and improvements. As many homeowners probably appreciate, the list sometimes seems to never end. And for us, it has included over the years, replacing the heating and air conditioning system and air conditioning units, replacing the hot, the water heater, painting and repairing the full exterior of the house, painting the interior of the house, replacing the porch flooring on the front and side porches with composite wood, gutter repairs, roof repairs, new refrigerator, new oven, ceiling leaks, ongoing flooding in the basement, waterproofing the basement, mold removal in the basement, drainage work because of excess water outside the house that was running into the neighbor's property, fence repair, and so on. So basically the Kavanaugh's paid 1.2 for a money pit. Why would any bank with a functional abacus approve such a terrible loan? And why would Brett and Ashley agree to it? To compound this profile, The Kavanaugh's are also members of a country club with a $92,000 initiation fee and $9,000 annual dues, and send their two daughters to a private school that cost a minimum of $20,550 for their annual tuition. So, like, how could they afford all of that? What we know. Based on their earnings, Brett and Ashley could not afford their down payment, monthly mortgage, and fixed expenses. What we don't know. Where the down payment came from, and how they were able to pay the mortgage. What it could be. In the case of the home and mortgage anomalies, there may be an answer, and it spells trouble. Kavanaugh's family is well-to-do. His father, Everett Edward Ed Kavanaugh Jr., was a well-heeled corporate lobbyist for what used to be called the Toilet Goods Association. As Salon reports, for more than three decades... Edward Everett Kavanaugh worked for the Cosmetic, Toiletry, and Fragrance Association, or CTFA, now called Personal Care Products Council, PCPC, whose 600-member companies include giant multinational firms like Johnson & Johnson, Veda, Clairol, L'Oreal, and Unilever. Once known inelegantly as the Toilet Goods Association, the name change in 1971 was part of an organizational metamorphosis that prepared the association and the industry to face a new decade of challenge. End quote. 
The year before Brett and Ashley bought the house, 64-year-old Ed Cavanaugh retired from his position at the CTFA, receiving a farewell package worth some $13.5 million. So Pops definitely had a lot of money burning a hole in his pocket if he decided to bankroll the life of his only child and his family. But as with all things Cavanaugh, even this benign explanation is a devil's triangle of logic. If Megabucks Ed was underwriting his son's life, why just give the down payment? Why not buy the house outright? Then it becomes an investment. Why involve a lender at all? And if Brett really did receive such significant assistance from his parents, why didn't he just say so? Surely there's no shame in accepting family help, especially if you have forsaken corporate lobbying with its filthy lucre for a career in public service. Was he concerned about the tax implications? Was he embarrassed that his buddies were all rolling in dough and he was too broke-ass to afford a new car? Was the humiliation so great that, oops, he omitted the gift on his federal disclosure statement? Whatever the case, the explanation Kavanaugh gave under oath about the provenance of this money is simply not corroborated by the evidence. Once again, we're asked to believe alternative math. The debt. The unaccounted for quarter mill down payment was not the only whopper in his financial disclosure forms. Brett's credit card debt was also an issue. Kavanaugh's 2016 statement shows significant credit card balances on three cards, Chase, Bank of America, and USAA. The overall debt amount increased from the previous year. According to his form, the minimum he would have owed in combined credit card debt was $45,003. The real number is almost certainly higher. And then, a year later, poof, like magic, all of that credit card debt was gone. And nothing in the disclosure statements gives the faintest hint at how this was achieved. When asked about being suddenly and inexplicably back in the black, Kavanaugh said, Our annual income and financial worth substantially increased in the last few years as a result of a significant annual salary increase for federal judges, a substantial back pay award in the wake of class litigation overpay for the federal judiciary, and my wife's return to the paid workforce following the many years that she took off from paid work in order to stay with and care for our daughters. The back pay award was excluded from disclosure on my previous financial disclosure report based on the filing instructions for judicial officers and employees, which excludes income from the federal government. This statement is not a lie per se, but it does skirt the truth. First, while his family income did increase, the Kavanaugh's, as discussed, simply did not generate enough to cover their ample expenses. Second, Ashley Kavanaugh went back to work in 2016, a year when their credit card debts went sharply up, not down. Finally, the substantial back pay award for the federal judiciary, approximately 150 grand before taxes, was issued in 2014. While this squares with his financial disclosure statement of 2015, which shows a sharp reduction in outstanding credit card balances, the overall picture remains one of a family mired in debt, given an infusion of unexpected cash, but still struggling to make ends meet. So let's return to a plausible explanation for the sudden clearing of his credit card debt, Daddy Ed Bucks. If the windfall of money to make Brett whole came from his wealthy father, why did he fail to mention Ed Kavanaugh in the disclosures? Gifts of that magnitude must, by law, be accounted for. There's a special section for it on the forums. If it was a debt owed by someone else, he should have disclosed the debtor by reporting a receivable in the assets income section of one report, explains Walter Schaub, who headed the U.S. Office of Government Ethics for the Obama administration. If the payoff was a gift, he should have reported the payer in the gift section of the next report. Kavanaugh did neither. What we know? Per his 2017 financial disclosure, filed in May of 2018, Brett Kavanaugh, on his modest salary as a federal judge, managed to pay off $45,000 plus in credit card debt. What we don't know? How? This episode is brought to you by Four Sticks Press, publisher of Dirty Rubles, an introduction to Trump Russia by Greg Oliar. Salon calls Dirty Rubles essential reading for all Americans. For a limited time, Dirty Rubles is available for the special price of $5.49. That's $5.49 on Amazon.com. 
This episode is also brought to you by Prevail, Greg Oliar's Substack, with new columns every Tuesday and Friday and a literary Sunday pages every weekend. Prevail is your place for in-depth reporting. Subscribe at gregoliar.com. That's G-R-E-G-O-L-E-A-R.com. And now, back to the program. Two, red flags. What are the odds that Brett Kavanaugh has a gambling problem? Rumors of his yen for the sports book followed him to the Senate Judiciary Committee, which grilled him on the subject. Under oath, he denied ever reporting gambling losses or gambling earnings on his tax forms and, here's the potential doozy, claimed never to have participated in, quote, any form of gambling or game of chance or skill with monetary stakes, including but not limited to poker, dice, golf, sports betting, blackjack, and craps, end quote, since becoming a federal judge in 2006. We have no way of knowing if Kavanaugh is a high-stakes gambler, and we're not accusing him of being one. However, given the murkiness surrounding the sudden influx of capital into his pocket, it's not unreasonable to ask if that huge down payment was a windfall from some crazy parlay he'd won. Same thing with the magical vanishing credit card debts. In talking with professional bookies about this, we are informed that he fits the profile, his personality, his love of sports, and the boomer-bust nature of his financial statements. You look at the spots Kavanaugh has gotten himself into, says a prevail source who operates in the colorful world of professional gambling, and it's either drugs, women, or gambling. Doesn't look like the first two. And then there's the weirdness about the baseball tickets. This is where Brett Kavanaugh, a man mired in debt on three different credit cards, agreed to be the guy who purchased Washington National season ticket packages for all of his pals who then reimbursed him for their share. When asked about Kavanaugh's hefty liabilities in 2018, White House spokesman Raj Shah told Amy Britton of the Washington Post that, quote, Kavanaugh built up the debt by buying Washington National season tickets and tickets for playoff games for himself and a handful of friends. Shah said some of the debts were also for home improvements, end quote. Shaw explained that Kavanaugh's friends reimbursed him for said tickets, but did not identify who these friends were. Further, Britton writes, quote, Shaw said the payments for the tickets were made at the end of 2016 and paid off early the next year. He did not carry that kind of debt year over year, Shaw said, end quote. Shaw has since moved on to Fox News, where as a VP executive, he can lie with impunity. In other words, the reason Brett's credit card debt went from $45,000 plus to zero from 2016 to 2017 is that he and his friends went in on some MLB tickets? Really? On its face, this explanation is absurd. First, as his financial disclosure statements make clear, Kavanaugh did, in fact, carry that kind of debt over year over year. Second, given his enormous fixed monthly expenses and his country club lifestyle, he couldn't afford even his share of the tickets. Third, for Brett to be the purchaser of the tickets is financially reckless, If you add big purchases to credit cards that are already carrying large balances, you increase the principal on which the credit card company charges interest. Why would Kavanaugh offer to front the cash for the tickets? And why would he do it across three credit cards? Does he really like the Nationals that much? Does anyone? Here's what he told the Senate. As is typical with baseball season tickets, I had a group of old friends who would split games with me. We would usually divide the tickets in a ticket draft at my house. Everyone in the group paid me for their tickets based on the cost of the tickets to the dollar. No one overpaid or underpaid me for tickets. No loans were given in either direction. As with his responses to questions about the down payment, this ticket draft story doesn't pass the smell test. It's dumb. And by giving it to the Senate, it opened the door for more scrutiny. More questions over why he would do this. The Senate Democrats never got to pursue the reasons. We'll give it a shot. Being eternally short on funds, maybe the tickets were a way to get some cash in Brett's pocket. This isn't the extravagant version of going out with your buddies, putting the $100 bar tab on your Amex, and collecting $20 from your four friends. It's like hitting an ATM machine. We've all done it. And now we get to call it the Kavanaugh. Prevail contributor Moscow Never Sleeps, an attorney, has a saltier theory. Kavanaugh's story is that he ran up between sixty dollars and $200,000 in credit card debt buying baseball tickets. That is a traceable fact if anyone had access to his card statements or to the ticket sales office of the Nationals. The next part of his story is that he distributed those tickets and was reimbursed for them. Thus, he paid off the credit cards. 
as long as he has about seven to 21 alibis willing to say, yeah, I boofed Brett about nine grand in cash from my set of tickets. That explains A, how he got the money back, B, why there's no paper trail, and C, how there's no tax filings for receipt of 10K or more in cash from one particular source. Of course, the actual amount of cash he gets is potentially a lot more. But since the main flagship questions, why did he buy the tickets and how did he afford to pay for them, are now answered with full legal plausibility, it's nearly impossible to claim probable cause for a warrant to look for more cash coming in than going out. So, presto, you have A, washed a transfer of between sixty dollars and $200,000 to a government official in one year, and B, fairly well immunized that government official, absent completely new evidence from a warrant on his finances, that would discover the other quarter million who potentially boofed him. To be clear, that is just a theory. We have no proof that Kavanaugh did something like this, and we're not accusing him of doing so. But the pesky fact remains, in order to finance his handsome home and underwrite his family's expensive existence, he had to be getting cash from somewhere. What's also indisputable is that Kavanaugh's two unexplained financial windfalls immediately preceded his nomination to, one, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, mortgage down payment, 2006, and two, the Supreme Court, credit card debts, 2017. There may be a perfectly benign explanation for that, but baseball tickets ain't it. Optically, this is fishier than a terrine of beluga caviar. What it looks like is that this guy has been paid off. What it looks like is that he's owned. The purpose of financial disclosure, as Kavanaugh himself has pointed out, is to identify potential conflicts of interest. These conflicts tarnish a judge's impartiality, which is the most essential qualification for the job. If a sitting Supreme Court justice is beholden to unknown creditors, we need to know who they are, even if the unknown creditors turn out to be Ma and Pa Kavanaugh. How else can we be sure he isn't compromised? We still don't know who paid off Kavanaugh's massive debts because he was allowed to violate the financial disclosure law, Schaub, the former head of the Office of Government Ethics, tweeted in January 2021, and no one made an issue of it during his confirmation hearing. Watching those hearings now, from that first week of September 2018, it seems clear to us that the Democrats had a strategy for getting everything out. And frustration was building, because they had also been analyzing that massive last-minute document dump from the White House, and Brett's under-oath testimonies, both in 2006 and concurrent with the dump in 2018, were not checking out. So Cory Booker placed a big bet. On September 6th, he released the confidential documents. There was a flurry of activity, because now the press could go through all of Brett's secret correspondence. And just as the earliest stories were beginning to surface, the shit hit the proverbial fan. A curveball from left field was thrown across the plate. For the first time since the Clarence Thomas hearings in 1989, the nominee was being accused of a sex crime, sexual assault, in the case of Brett Kavanaugh. And all hell broke loose. Someone had finally read Dr. Ford's email. My friends and I sometimes got together and had parties on weekends. The drinking age was 18 in Maryland for most of my time in high school and was 18 in D.C. for all of my time in high school. I drank beer with my friends. Almost everyone did. Sometimes I had too many beers. Sometimes others did. I liked beer. I still like beer. But I did not drink beer to the point of blacking out, and I never sexually assaulted anyone. There is a bright line between drinking beer, which I gladly do, and which I fully embrace, and sexually assaulting someone, which is a violent crime. All right, I'm here with Moscow Never Sleeps. Um, he's called Moscow Never Sleeps. That is his pen name. And the first thing I want to ask you is why you chose that pen name. I, I was thinking when I suggested doing a pen name, you'd go for something like Gorky Parker or uh, a name and not a phrase, but um, what, what was your thought Moscow process? Never, Moscow Never Sleeps is sort of the anthem of the 2000s. It's, uh, it's a club tune. Uh, and, you know, you, if you plug it into YouTube, you'll see it all over the place. And it very much exemplifies sort of the, the spirit of, of the city as a place where it really never sleeps. It's a 24-hour party. So, so, so it's like Wichita. It's like no other place on earth. It's like New York 
meets Animal House meets, you know, your favorite whacked out Luc Besson science fiction extravaganza with a lot of snow. <laughs> so when were you there for? What, what years were you in Moscow? If you, if you, um, I was there from 97 to 2013. The joke that I tell everybody is 16 years in Moscow is like 100 years in human years. That's four entire college careers. It is, I raised four kids there. Uh, I went there with a couple that were like two and four, and they graduated into college by the time we left. And I had two more who, you know, spent you know, up to 10 years living in the city. It is the longest single residence that I've lived anywhere in my life. I've come close in a couple cities in the United States, but it is, as of now, the longest stretch geographically in my resume. So I, you're fluent in Russian, I assume. Well, nobody's ever going to mistake me as a native. Um, yeah. Although, you know, I, I had taken, you know, I had taken college and graduate level courses in the language and I, I got along. But when I got there, you know, like a lot of people, I ended up hiring a driver. And, uh, you know, like a lot of drivers, uh, you know, the guy tended to have an extremely uh, fluid street vocabulary that I quickly became comfortable with. So, you know, nuances of cursing and sarcasm are sometimes within my grasp and sometimes I'm hopeless at it. It's interesting about the cursing because I feel like you never really speak a foreign language until you curse. When I, when my wife and I went to France, we were in Paris on our honeymoon the first night and I got in a fight with the with the uh, concierge woman at the hotel who had ripped us off. And it was very, very frustrating not to be able to curse to her properly in, in, in French. You know, I, could, I could tell her I was upset or whatever, but you know, I, I couldn't curse in the way that I wanted to. And I found it really, really stifling. Um, Probably for the best, but. Uh, Russian prides itself, and I don't know, you know maybe, maybe they're wrong, but. Russian prides itself at having one of the most intricate profanity vocabularies of any modern language. It, it, even, you know, it even has a short phrase for the, for the entire section of vocabulary, right? Which is mutt, which either means your mother or shouting. And it, it starts off essentially with seven very simple and common to every uh, middle schooler around the world set of root words, you know, generally referring to reproductive functions. Okay, so I pull Kavanaugh's name out of a fishbowl, and my job is what do I do first? Now, we've been talking about perjury yeah. and, and financial misstatements, and we don't know where the 60 to 200, where the 200 came from for his down payment in his house. And by the way, I mean, yes, I realize that this is banal shit. It really is, okay? But history is full of major decisions made turning on banal he said, she said, or who was at the party and what did they serve for dinner kind of fact patterns. Maybe his old man gave it to him. But, Maybe somebody else gave it to him. But it doesn't matter. And the reason is, that was 15 years ago. And as long as he told, you know, as long as he disclosed it on his mortgage application forms, it's not a crime. I mean, he could have disclosed on his mortgage application forms. Uh, I, I got it from a family member because you can't really get it from the Federalist Society. That's not cool. <laughs> All right. But I got it from somebody. And here's proof that it was his money and not some money that was. Just, now, you can actually you can actually fudge this a lot. Right. The mortgage system is full of like winks and nods. 
All right. So if you want to play with this, if you got somebody named, you know, oh, I don't know, Ivan Klimov or something like that, he wants to give you $200,000 as a bribe and you're going to use it for your house down payment. Well, he can't give it to you because he's not related to you. Right. And the mortgage company can't give you the loan. So he sticks it. He sticks it in your brother's bank account for 90 days. Your brother gives it to you and your brother writes you a letter and says, I am Brett Kavanaugh's brother. I know he doesn't have one, right? But you know, I am Brett Kavanaugh's brother or sister or father, or I am Ashley Kavanaugh's brother or sister or father or mother. And I am giving this money of my own free will to them forever. Okay. I have no claim on it. And here is a bank statement showing that money on account as of the beginning of the month. And then it going into their account. That's it. That's about all the due diligence the bank wants to do. The bank is the bank wants to do a loan, right? So you have done what the what the statute requires. The bank is not going to say, uh, I need proof that that was really her or his money. You got it. It was there in the beginning of the month. It was it was there, it was his money when he gave it to me. All right. The standard has been met. Perjury has not been performed. But in 2016, somewhere between sixty dollars to $200,000 went away. And we don't know where that came from. And that's the question we keep asking. So if I'm, if I'm tasked with finding it out, that's the one I'm going after. Let's go to what happened in 2016. We're going to take a quick break. And we come back. Moscow never sleeps. We're going to talk 2016 and credit card debt. Okay, we're back. You're across the table from Brett Kavanaugh in a windowless room. You've been tasked with getting them. You say, no, it's not the down payment as crazy and, a, and as illogical and as bad math as it may be. That's not the thing that's going to get him. What's going to get him is the, the uh, incredible vanishing credit card debt. So tell us about that. Yeah, and just to be clear, we're going to get to the mortgage payment. Okay, we're going to get to that, but that's not the first place you go. The first place you go is the most recent. He's not going to sit down with you unless you've got a a serious hook. And here's the hook. If someone paid that off for him, that is a reportable taxable income. You received a benefit from someone. If I pay off, you have $10,000 of credit card debt. I pay it off for you, okay? Thanks. uh, You're very welcome. $10,000 of your debt went away, all right? You have to report that $10,000 as income. I may or may not be able to report it as a deductible, but you received a benefit. That is revenue as defined by the IRS. Also, I think if you're a federal judge, you kind of have to put that on your financial disclosure statement. You do, but guess, but remember, the way those financial disclosure statements are written, they are designed to be opaque. You do not have to indicate where your income came from as much as you have to indicate where your debts are to. Also, you are indicating in bands of value. Right. That's why we're always saying 60 to 200, because that's a band that you report within. Yeah. Yes, you probably should indicate who paid your credit card debts. But what I would do now that we have control of Treasury, we already have Yellen in Treasury. We do. Yep. Which means Dick Neal just has to send her a letter saying, I want to see Kavanaugh's taxes. Okay, I told you this wasn't going to get pretty and it's going to get fucking uglier in a couple of seconds, because this is exactly what most people who are squeamish get squeamish about. Can we really use the government and the tax man to go after people we don't like? Well, what the fuck do we have them for? I would argue, yes, I would argue if you're one of nine people on a Supreme Court of the United States tasked with the enormous responsibility of deciding and determining law for generations to come, and you have this many red flags in your financial history, then goddamn, yeah. 
And when you say uh, Dick Neal, you mean Congressman Richard Neal, who is the chair of the Ways and Means Committee. From my old district, okay, former mayor of Springfield, Massachusetts. And he is, um, he is a quiet killer, okay? He is a stone, blue-eyed, never raises his voice, never loses his temper. But, you know, I'm going to tell you something about people from Western Massachusetts, all right? Um, we don't play. <laughs> okay. There's a lot of kettle ponds where a lot of assholes, you know, maybe feeding the fish. It's not a, pl- it, it, he is not in any way, shape or form vulnerable politically. And he doesn't really have to worry about being primaried or being, you know, taken out in the general election, he will have that seat until he is done with it. Okay, so so he you sends get, a request. He sends a request. He gets the taxes. He hands it over to the Senate. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now it can, he they keep it quiet because if this goes public, Roberts is going to have a fit. This is a separation of powers issue as far as he's concerned. Anyone who thinks that this turns into an impeachment hearing is out of his mind. No, no, no. We don't, we don't even want that. No, no, no. This thing is quiet. So I'm the guy whose job it is within, you know, within Kamala Harris's hit squad to make sure that I can get in a room with that guy. And I sit down with him and I push his taxes across And I say, I don't, I've seen your taxes for the last 10 years. And I don't see anything explaining where 60 to $90,000 came from. But what I was able to do is based on that, I can then go and I have gone, Brett, Mr. Justice, that's probable cause. And I have gotten statements from your banks and from your credit card companies, all right? And this, he said, pushing a piece of paper across the table, is who paid your credit card bills. But this is your tax returns that don't indicate his name, even transliterated, or the amounts of money that he paid on your behalf. So you have a tax problem. which can go away or not. How would it go away? Brett yeah, asks. How, would it, how would it go away? Well, I have good news and bad news for you. The bad news is you don't wear a black robe for very much longer. The good news is because this stays quiet, you go into private practice and you start making between 1.5 and $2 million a year legitimately, okay? I mean, Fortis died a very rich man. So did Goldberg. Fortis and Goldberg being? Fortis and Goldberg being a pair of Democrat-appointed, Democratic president-appointed Supreme Court justices from the 1960s, both of whom resigned from the court, not retired because they hadn't been on the court long enough, right? And I'm not sure that Kavanaugh has that option because he's only been in the federal judiciary for 15 years. And we're not giving him another five. Yeah. yeah. Right. But when Goldberg and Fortas resigned, they just went right into they went right into private practice with a Supreme Court advocacy practice, charging just straight fuck you money and getting paid. And either they were the guys, you know, they could charge 10, 15, 20 thousand dollars in today's money just to look at something and tell you whether it was going to fly on cert, okay? Overseeing a cert petition could be two weeks of work equaling half of what his salary is on the conference. Well, there's a lot of of hush-hush. You know, he's been involved in a lot of dirty shit. If you go back and look at his career, there's, it's just a nakedly partisan CV. Going exactly. Back and to- here's the thing. As a naked partisan, even in, especially 
in a Democratic administration, a naked Republican partisan is it, it, it is going to be a money magnet. Oh, my God. He's going to make a fortune. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So when people are walking, when I tell this to people, you know, and they walk around, oh, my God, that poor guy, what are you doing for? Yeah. I'm putting his kids through college, you dick. <laughs> okay. I'm getting him a second and a third house. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm making sure that Ashley gets one of the best divorces in town. So, you know, I don't really, I mean, so if you're squeamish about this, I mean, if I threw in dancing girls and jetpacks, it wouldn't be much better than this deal. Yeah, no, it's a good deal. So just just to summarize what, what we've been talking about here, the thing to do is to go through, not through justice, but through treasury, get to look at his taxes, figure out that it doesn't line up with the financial disclosures, then go back, look at the down payments and all of this kind of stuff and establish the answer to the question, who owns Kavanaugh? We get right, well, this we has want. been this has been a, uh, a fascinating discussion. No, thank you very much. No, I'm, thanks. I'm glad thanks for out. Thanks for joining us. This is uh, Moscow Never Sleeps. He wrote an excellent series uh, on Prevail about how to fix the Supreme Court, which I encourage everybody to read. And uh, thanks for listening. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye now. And now we're going to open the floor up to you, the listeners. First up, Grant Delaney. Hey, Prevail team, I have a question and then some ramble on. So just cut me off wherever you might need to. Um, as a podcast addict and a huge fan of Greg Olier's uh, deeply informed, piercingly honest voice, it's great to have him here in the podcast arena. The value of optimism and the idea that we'll ultimately prevail in this battle is hard to overstate. I'm Grant Delaney from Louisville, Kentucky. I'd really like to hear... Uh, Greg's take on the right approach for those of us who know the truth to take when dealing with Trump's fans. I mean, I fully agree with the views Greg and LB have both expressed about average citizens not being culpable in the way elected official and uh, media figures are. But as somebody with family and friends who are misinformed super fans of lunacy, it's uh, Infuriating, heartbreaking, deeply frustrating, and uh, while there seems, you know, dealing with them openly and with love one at a time is a, maybe the only realistic approach. Uh, some are so entrenched in uh, their views that reaching them really is currently impossible. So I just hold the line at the truth try to leave doors open where that's possible. But uh, anyhow, your take on where we go with any of that is uh, great because debating, you know, these disingenuous, misinformed fools is pointless as well as insane. Thanks. Grant, thanks so much for calling in and for the, the kind words. It's a really hard question to answer. I wish I had a, a better answer for you because it's tough. I mean, when you're dealing with a population of people who are you know, believe alternative facts, it's very difficult to penetrate that bubble. But I have just been trying to be persistent with putting the facts out there and being patient. It's hard when you've been fooled. You know, nobody likes to be made a fool of. No one likes to be gullible to have fallen for something. It's humiliating. So what has to happen now is people have to kind of wake up and snap out of it and they will feel better if they think that they arrive at this conclusion on their own. They don't want to have some quote unquote liberal there saying, told you so. Um, and I'm sure you know that, but it's, it, 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 it's hard for us on our side of the thing, not to jump up and down and say, come on, wake up. But they will wake up eventually because I think that what's going to happen now that Garland is going to get in there and Biden is taking over is that um, the situation is going to be so much better. It's going to be such a market improvement from Trump to Biden that it's going to be undeniable. The schools closed under Trump. They're going to open under Biden. The you know, businesses closed under Trump. They're going to open under Biden. Vaccines were stalled and, and, and the response was a catastrophe under Trump. It's been great under Biden. So these are things that are hard to ignore. But uh, hopefully that uh, enough people in your neck of the woods will, will see the light because 
Kentucky could use some new senators in a big way. But thank you again for, for calling in. And now, next up, Mimi Fisher. Hey, Greg. My name is Mimi Fisher, and I've been a supporter of yours on the Substack for a while now. And um, I'm just listening to your first episode of the podcast. And I didn't make it all the way through because uh, you kind of got me or I kind of got stuck on uh, your surprise about Russia uh, and Republicans and how the Republicans had all, always been, quote unquote, anti-Russia. And this is a mistake because really the Republicans were anti-communist. So they were anti-USSR. They were anti-communist. And once the USSR imploded and uh, there was a period of upheaval and what Russia resolved into was essentially a mafia state, then the Republicans were completely aligned with what Russia was serving. Because, you know, we have our own homegrown oligarchs here, and they have been trying to destroy the United States federal government for many decades. I mean, let's, let's take it back, of, of course, to Reagan, uh, they were really feeling their oats then, and they've never backed down since then. And the Kochs have incredible alignment with, let's say, Semyon Mogilevich. They're all the same. They're criminals that usurp power and destroy systems for their own benefit. So I kind of had to pause the, uh, the uh, podcast because I, I get a little frustrated, but I did want to reach out and just say hello because... Uh, you and especially Lincoln's Bible have been, you know, with me through this whole crisis of the past five years, illuminating things to me. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to give you my take and I appreciate you uh, and thank you for doing a podcast. So I, I will listen to the rest of it and I've already subscribed and given you a five-star review, by the way. Okay, bye. Mimi, thank you for the five-star review. Thank you for taking the time to to call in. And you're right. It, it, it isn't the Russians that they hated, the Republicans, the old-school Republicans. It's the Soviets. It's the communists because they were capitalists and this and that. You're absolutely right. Um, lots of other good points that you made in there. Reagan as a whole thing. I mean, we really should spend a lot more time. And I, I think historians ultimately will spend a lot more time talking about Ronald Reagan and the insidious effect that he had on this country. I like to read those, um, the rankings that historians make of where they rank the presidents, even though it's a, it's a silly thing. It's very hard to compare being a president in, in 1795 to being a president now. It's, 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 you know, it's like comparing eras in basketball or baseball or something. Um, but Reagan is consistently pretty high, and I, I don't know if he should be. I think that as we get farther away from the Reagan administration, he's going to plummet down the ranks of the, the presidents because he just initiated so many bad things. Just the idea that government is the problem is such an awful, awful lie to sell to people. And we're still recovering from that. We're still recovering from it or trying to recover. It's, it's, it's very sad. Anyway, thank you so much for calling in. I really appreciate it. appreciate the, the listen and the support and subscribing, and the five-star review. I'm going to close the show now with uh, a call-in from John Rich from Boston. He has a lot to say, and it's not really a question. It's more of a statement, and I think it's what he has to say is so interesting. I'm just going to close the show with him. Um, so when we come back, I'm going to thank him in advance, and then um, we're just going to go right to the credits, and we'll, we'll see you next week. So again, thanks, everybody, for calling in. I appreciate it. If you would like to be on the show, just email me. Uh, make, a, make an audio clip of yourself asking a question or a comment. Try to keep it shorter than two minutes would be ideal. And email it to me. My email is just my name at the Gmail. So without further ado, here's John. Hey, Greg. This is John Rich from Boston. I just wanted to say thanks for starting your podcast series with Lincoln's Bible and offer some comments. A standout for me was Lincoln Bible's comments about Trump voters who are average, loyal Republicans and are aware of how corrupt he is. And they voted for him anyway. 
many of them twice. She spoke a bit about how at some point they will feel a need to come to reconciliation with that, but trying to force that now would reinforce their need for tribal identity and be counterproductive. I agree with that, but the Biden administration needs to have and use some smart jujitsu type moves to make rapid corrections to the damage done by Colt 45 and counter Republican gains in Congress and down ballot statewide offices, ASAP. A significant process needs to be made within the two-year election cycle. And most Americans realize that democracy just narrowly missed being wiped out on January 6, 2021. And there's still plenty of malicious action in progress towards establishing fascistic oligarchy in the USA. In my opinion, there is a metaphorical cosmic singularity process occurring in the U.S. and worldwide with simultaneous destruction of the environment and democracy. Oligarchy has been destroying the environment and human capacity to, co to counter it for many decades and at an accelerated pace in the U.S. over the last 50 years. The rise of Trump, his administration, and the January 6th attack on democracy were right out of the playbook of former political philosopher and mentor to George W. Bush administration neocons, Leo Strauss, the author of Noble Lies and Perpetual War, and the playbook of former public relations and propaganda guru Edward Bernays and his opus text, Propaganda. Political maniacs like Dick Cheney, Steve Bannon, Paul Manafort, and Roger Stone all enthusiastically employed the strategies of Strauss and Bernays. Their modus operandi has been to create and take advantage of a good crisis to manipulate the public, Congress, and the courts to further advance their ideology of fascistic oligarchy. Deep, all levels of activism employed over 50 years is what the fascistic oligarchs assiduously promoted to achieve the malignant metastasization of what was revealed on January 6th. The New York Times published another great article by Emily Badger on February 9th titled, West Virginia Has Everyone's Attention, What Does It Really Need? It succinctly and thoroughly describes a wide range of ideas about ways to counter environmental destruction and social dissolution in West Virginia from a wide spectrum of program developers, practitioners, and academicians in social sciences. The article is essentially a focus on the gestalt of West Virginia and describes an inspiring collection of what seems to me great ideas for effective change, which could create the paradigm shift needed to help people and communities have better lives and be far less susceptible to manipulation by fascist oligarchs and their propaganda mercenaries. I don't think the things described in the article could on their own affect paradigm shift, but if places like West Virginia could be flooded with startups as described in the article and simultaneously supported by a massive grassroots dissemination of smartly framed and promoted stories that show people how badly they've been abused and what can make them better off, they might be less inclined to stay tuned into the malignant influence ecosystem they're locked into. In that process, they would most likely naturally come to reconciliation on what their support of Trumpism wrought for the country. The approach described above would be a slower, holistic, and humanistic approach to social paradigm shift than the strategies employed by the fascist oligarchs. Slow, holistic humanism doesn't jive with the two-year election cycle. 
and Martin Luther King Jr.'s enlightened exhortation on the fierce urgency of now. The logical response is that a new and massive awareness and commitment to activism among citizens is needed to establish the beginning of an appealing alternative to Trumpism. Hopefully, by using the strategies of Stacey Abrams in Georgia, enough healthy seeds of optimism can be sown around the country among those caught up in Cult 45 and to make a positive difference for democracy in 2022. After that, it's going to take sustained activism among true believers in democracy to keep the ship of state on a positive and steady course to meet the challenges of a complex society in the midst of trying to stop environmental destruction and restore the balance of ecology and society. Some resources for effective dialogue framing are the writing and speeches of linguist George Lakoff from UC Berkeley and Karen Tamarius's Facebook group, Smart Politics. There are other helpful resources on history, how-to information, and recent technological and engineer, engineering solutions to the environmental problems and ideas for legislation posted on my environmental Facebook page titled Green and Blue Again. So that's it, Greg. That's, uh, those are my ideas. Um, you know, just one guy thinking out loud. Um, thanks for the opportunity. And uh, that's about it. Bye. Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian voiceover. Thanks to Stephanie St. John for the narration. Thanks to Allison Gill, Jason Smith, Mackenzie Mazell, and everyone else involved with producing this podcast. Please subscribe to the Prevail website. Visit gregolear.com. That's G-R-E-G-O-L-E-A-R.com. Until next time, we shall prevail. W.